What's up, everybody? Welcome to Building Our Power. This is Gabby and KT. We're back with another episode. Thank you, everybody, for uh, you know being patient with us. We didn't have one last week, but we got one again today. Links are in the description if you want to donate to what we're doing. If you'd like to join us in the work. And uh, if you like to hit us up on social media, links are in the description. Let's get straight on into it. Let's not play no games here. All right. So we're starting on page 56. If you have the PDF version, it says our counterterrorism will bring on a stage two fascist repression. There is no question in our minds. Blacks, men under hatches about the nature of the ruling class. The exceedingly violent disposition of the USA ruling class is well documented with just a glance into our lives and the order of our deaths. The point is to reveal this, quote, senseless violence to the entire revolutionary class or classes. Counterterrorism is a mighty tool and the only one at our disposal in the opening stages of people's war. In some cases, in other revolutionary societies, this level of violence alone was sufficient to win all the demands of the people. However, I'm sure that here it will not be sufficient because of the complexities of the USA class structure and its stockpile of potential further violence. Many of the small demands of a sizable portion of the population are slowly being met at the expense of all the rest of us and the world's people. A new pig-oriented class has been created at the bottom of our society, from which the ruling class will be always able to draw some support. Consequently, our task will be to move from counter-terrorist tactics into the second stage of larger guerrilla unit operation. Over 90% of the USA population live in cities and towns. And although some of the principles of classic Mao Chase-style guerrilla operations must be used to stop the orderly flow of intercity and interstate commerce, most of the real fighting must take place inside the nerve centers of the nation, the cities. This is an entirely new situation in the development of people's war, whereas the classic types of the third world movement generally relied upon the strangling of provincial capitals where the enemy colonial power tended to concentrate itself in urban guerrilla warfare where the colonies can be said to be situated within the city. The process or tactics will be unique. Though the basic strategy is the same, urban guerrilla warfare differs from all that has ever taken place in the arena of guerrilla against the God state. There are similarities between our situation and that of the growing movement of the Uruguayan people, and perhaps we can draw from their experience. But to be realistic, the disparity in size and population, the relative strength of the enemy state institutions, and their global sweep must seriously be taken into account. Uruguay is a colony of Anglo-America. Defeat of the Uruguayan government and a change in the present property relations would of necessity mean the defeat of a section of an American imperial infrastructure. The comparison between ourselves and the Algerian liberation experience is almost tenable, untenable, though there may be some small tactical lessons to be gleaned from their urban effort. It must be kept in mind that the principal battles that led to the people's victory were fought on the countryside between massive French mechanized divisions and a classical guerrilla army of the people. The battle for the Algiers was only aided by the forces within. The 
The people's fifth column within the city of the Algiers was not a model of perfection, simply because the principal effort, energy, and motor forces were located in the classical guerrilla units that engaged the French expeditionary forces for control of the countryside. At issue there in Algeria were such things as crew petroleum, 62% of the nation's exports, agricultural products, 18%, and some iron ore. All these basic raw materials were, of course, located in the countryside and had to be protected by the French. Yeah, so I think this is a good place to kind of add some comments here. So I just want to confirm. Basically, what he's saying here is that while um, while we, we can look at the previous revolutions that were happening and the previous things that did happen, we kind of have to create our own unique situation because of the, the current state that we are in. Um, we, most of our resources are put in the city as opposed to in the countryside, like he was talking about with the French and with Algeria. So, yeah, I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure he's gonna get into it, but yeah, it's a different, it's a different dynamic. And then you're in the city with a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of buildings, uh, a lot of electricity everywhere, a lot of um, yeah. So it's a different thing, but I'm sure he's gonna get into it. The war for control of the USA is unique in that its heartbeat can be stopped only by placing our primary forces in the valley and defiles of its city streets. USA is the colonial master, the center of the imperial process, where the raw materials are worked into finished manufactured products to be recirculated back into the exterior and the interior colonies. In a comparison of the classical forms of war of liberation fought in the outlying colonies and the one we must yet formulate, a vital question is immediately brought to our attention. Does it work in such a totally different setting? A theoretical examination indicates that it does. In fact, urban people's guerrilla warfare may prove to be an even more effective tool than its classical type. The same advantages are present. The same possibilities plus some that exist simply because the fight is taking place within the cities, the nerve centers of the nation. The enemy culture, the established government, exists first of all because of its ability to govern, to maintain enough order to ensure that a cycle of sorts exists between the various levels and elements of our society. Law and order is their objective. Ours is perfect order. Our aim is to stop the life cycle of the enemy culture and replace it with our own revolutionary culture. This can be done only by creating perfect disorder within the cycle of the enemy's culture life process and leaving a power vacuum to be filled by our building revolutionary culture. When the fight takes place within the cities, the disorder will be clearly will clearly be hastened. This will have an immediate effect on the consciousness of the bulk of the population and will strain the relationship between government and governed to the utmost. If the life of the manufacturing city is to be stopped, it is clear that the normal processes, at least, will be slowed by a convoy of establishment trucks, tanks, or troops simply moving in the city's arteries where commercial convoys should be moving. The necessary checkpoints will further slow it. 
Each one of the opposition's own tank shells that is fired inside the manufacturing city at the elusive guerrilla will destroy some aspect of the factory city and undercut the ability of the establishment to produce another tank shell. It will not help the fascist cause very much at all when the armored personnel carrier or jeep patrol equipped with 30 caliber machine guns fires into a downtown shopping crowd at the elusive gorilla who has taken refuge amongst the people. The people will not understand. That's very interesting that he was talking about how you can use the city pretty much as another radicalizing tool because... It will take a halt to the production of things if you got damn near martial law going on and people have curfews or people, there's violence in the streets, people not going to work, people's businesses and stuff getting towed up. That will take a hit to the economy and it will it will cause the government to feel uh, the blows of that and also... You know, the radicalizing tool of the government is literally attacking you. Like, it may say it's looking for one person, but especially in the black community or something like that, you know that's when it just turned into them just shooting indiscriminately and everybody getting beat up. And so that can be another tool of, you know, making people see that they, these people are our enemies. They're not here to protect you because we're fighting for you. They're doing all this. In, in, in support of capital. That's the only reason why they're down here. And if you're in the way of them making money by any means, you're protecting the person, you're protecting the gorilla or whatever, you finna go down just like them. So. I think it's interesting in the fact that we have, ex- we have examples of mass unrest in, uh, in within the last, what, even just five years, six years, seven years, ten years, whatever. Um, but I, I don't know that it has really radicalized people the way he's kind of describing that it would, only because of the mass propaganda that the U.S. government and the amount of money that the U.S. government has to push into that propaganda. Like, they control the media, right? They control the media. They control quite literally everything. So for us to just uh you know not have our own like he's talking about us having our own culture that would mean us having our own newspapers our own media our own like things that can basically uh be our material every single day and we don't currently have that right now so even if we did go out in the street and we did scream and yell and burn buildings down without I feel like without that mass propaganda, without that culture, like he's talking about, it just wouldn't work. Well, that's what he talked about in a couple of episodes ago. He was talking about it's one whole cohesive thing, right. a revolutionary media, like a PR team, pretty much, uh, boots on the ground and the underground, um, underground facet as well. And the difference between this and with the George Floyd stuff is who was a revolutionary vanguard that was that was doing anything? Who, the, who was a revolutionary vanguard that was literally fighting for us and not getting a picture and not doing it for clout and not doing it to get a book deal mm-hmm. and not doing it just to see some reform? Who was in there? Who was out there? Who was a vanguard party, if that's what we want to do, 
that was literally saying, everybody get your ass in the street. We are going to take our power. And I don't care how long it takes. I'm putting my life on the line to make this is the time for insurrectionary blah, 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 blah. Nobody. Yeah, that's true. So there, there's not even, mm. we don't even have a modern day example of this. No, at all. So, yeah. And, but I will say, even with the reformism, all the liberals in there, there was a shift for a second. People were starting to see for a second. But like you said, the media came in and you had nobody really that was no prominent people that was really about it for people to even be like, well, maybe that's not right. They just fell out. They all fell in line. They all got soaked up. They all was doing political stuff. They all was on TV. They all was with Oprah. So by the end of it, you're like, well, maybe this is the common narrative. Maybe this is how I need to think. Maybe we just do need to reform the police. Maybe that's because all it people- takes. I feel like, like, originally, like, if we go back, because the most recent protest, giant protest, I feel like our best example is George Floyd. If we go back and we look at that, initially, 100%, it was, I feel like, a, uh, I lost my train of thought, I'm sorry. It wasn't no, it wasn't no revolutionary stuff. I, I know, but I'm not, I'm not saying it was a revolutionary stuff. But I am saying initially, I feel like people were really fucking pissed off. You know, they were really upset. And then, like I was talking about, like the media came in all of a sudden. Oh, we don't want to uh, completely erase the police. Oh, let's just go ahead and defund. And then from defund, it went to oh, let's just give more training. Like there's always this liberalization of it, or well, like a yeah. Uh, a, a less radical understanding of what we need to do. Because there's nobody constantly, during times like this, out yeah. organizing the people and making sure people know what's going on. Yeah. Like, there's no reason why you should only be seen is when somebody get killed. What sense did that make? And then try to be like, well, now we can do the organize. You're, you're, you're an opportunist. Literally. You're an opportunist. We're never going to get anything moving if that's the way you're finna operate, it, it's a joke to you. It's a joke to majority of these people, to be honest. And, and it's money. It's money for them too. I feel like it, it's 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 a grift. Yeah, it's a grift. it's literally a grift. And I just want to add this thing because the midterms is over, and everybody always says whenever we say don't vote, they say we can do both. We can vote. We can get in the streets too. We can organize and we can vote. We can do both. We can do both. It's time to do both. And who's in the streets? None of them people. Exactly. Them same people that were grifting, going door to door, saying, you should vote. You should vote. You should vote. How come you're not going door to door anymore and helping the people and talking to the community? Mm -mm. They might do a little bit because it's Christmas time. But after Christmas, that's pretty much it. Anyway, we've only read like two pages, but continue. Um, <laughs> the cities of fascist USA built straight up and with very little real planning or pattern. The twisting side streets, gangways, connecting roofs, manholes, storm drains, concrete and steel trees will hide a guerrilla army just as effectively as any forest. There is the added advantage that just being in an area doesn't automatically make one suspect in fair game. As in the case when an established army unit spots a gathering, no matter how innocent in an area where guerrilla movements have been reported in the countryside, just being out there defines them. 
The fact that the gorilla can hide himself fairly easily inside large population centers does not mean that hard work needn't be done towards the winning of popular support. It simply means that failure to gain full support for violent confrontation doesn't preclude violent confrontation. If all the elements exist that have made guerrilla warfare in its classical style an invincible weapon against mechanized industrial, industrially based armies in undeveloped areas, they will be even more successful in built up urban American conditions. The facts that make it impossible for the establishment army to overcome the attacking guerrilla army, in spite of the availability of the knowledge contained in the masterworks on guerrilla strategy, become clear when we realize that after the strategy is understood by the guerrilla chief, the tactics applicable to his particular military problems, quote, are a product of his imagination alone. A constant creative improvising. Also, working against the establishment's general staff is its own mentality. They've convinced themselves or have been convinced by their experience at war with other mechanized armies that, quote, having the most at the right time wins war. In other words, they feel that winning wars depends mainly on gadgets and they presume that they can dictate the terms and grounds upon which each battle takes place. They're locked in on a fixed set of systemized ideas that conflict completely with the realities of people's war. Their egos simply will never allow them to admit that all the ingenuity that has gone into the development of the Blitzkrieg has been wasted. A $100,000 tank can be destroyed with $2 worth of materials. A jet is useless against the rifleman, and it also can be destroyed with one well-placed burst from an assault rifle or destroyed on the ground by mortar from miles away. Then too, the pilot, years in the making, can be killed with a knife. The copter as a fighting machine is the most stupid of all costly gadgets. It can be heard from miles away. It can't be armored. A 10-cent bullet can render it useless. All of these contraptions require liquid fuel that will stop flowing when the production of all other commodities stop. Fighting really depends upon the people and small, easily machined portable weapons. Another factor that works to the advantage of the guerrilla army is time. The establishment forces cannot survive the prolonged unrest that is steadily building. Profits fall. The point of diminishing returns is eventually reached. And from there, the establishment's force and energy goes into its last stages of life. While our new revolutionary culture is building musical chairs where each go-round excludes some element of their control factors. The objective, I repeat, of the destruction of a city-based industrial establishment and its protective forces is to create perfect disorder, to disrupt all of their interacting processes that allow them to produce and distribute goods. And this can be done from within the process much more easily than from without. Really, there is no possibility of an established government ever overcoming a determined internal army. By their very nature, the quote, holder or owner, and his guard are exposed and vulnerable. A comparison between their mode of existence and that of the people's vanguard elements employing all the subtle scientific principles of urban guerrilla warfare will demonstrate clearly where their real power lies. Okay, uh, coming back up here. Again, still talking about, you know, doing urban guerrilla warfare and talking about some of the advantages and the differences one of the advantages, like we were talking about, for a urban guerrilla place is, you know, in a lot of our well-populated cities, there are 
huge skyscrapers. There are huge abandoned buildings. There's huge uh, apartment complexes. There's stadiums. There's there's so many places where one could go. There's huge ditches. There's huge manholes. A whole bunch of places in a very busy city that people could operate in or hide in that could be an advantage than being in the wilderness. Um, another one is, like he said, you're hiding amongst a group of a large amount of people and how that gives you a cloak of invisibility at times and how that can be used to your advantage and how... Um, with this, you don't necessarily need all of the support of everybody because you have protection in in numbers, literally. And um, again, that's something that can be used. It's not going to be the main factor in whether you win or not because, you know, technology, especially now, technology has gotten very advanced. We have a camera everywhere. Phones are tracking. There, there's all, There's always a way now. Unfortunately, in this digital age, for them to be tracking, but it it does help a little bit um, more so than just being a group of people in the countryside. Which, of course, you look weird. Why are all y'all gathered together by this tree? Like that, that puts more eyes on you. Um, and then he was talking about um how. You know, for some of these big Western powers, I just think, well, if we just have all the, the money, we have all the big things, we have all the the gear, we have all the, the uniforms and the tanks and this and that, we're automatically going to win. But again, one thing that he's been reinforcing this entire time is these people are not invincible. Mm-hmm. And we have tools. That make them not invincible, and uh, you know that's that's one of the um, the reasons that we're kind of like promoting. You know, get your get your knowledge up about whatever it is he's talking about right here on your own, and see what he's talking about. If you know what I mean, because apparently there's a way, and you know that's all I'm gonna say about that. And um, yeah, so pretty much. This this whole thing is about, you know, the enemy that we're fighting. And we know that the number one factor in America is profits, is the damn economy, is capitalism. And you can make it so that it becomes unprofitable for them to keep order in a certain area. They're expending too much money and the return on the investment is not going to be high enough so that people would just throw their hands up, at least for this little one spot of area. And um, so that's something you can be thinking about. Like, how can we destabilize an entire economy of a city? What are some of the main routes of transportation that goods come in and out of this city? What are some of the main distribution centers that could be halted to expedite the uh what we got going on so yeah very very interesting things anything you want to add nothing at all i completely agree with you yeah but just very interesting things that you could be thinking about with your peoples or on your own like these these are strategies as well you know and um 
you know, I this, that's why I think it's good to read theory and be actively planning or actively thinking about these things because I know this stuff, a lot of this stuff will be spontaneous. But you at least kind of want to have an idea. So we're not just running around like a chicken with our heads cut off. So what do y'all think, guys? Hit us in the description. We have links for you to contact us, for you to join us, for you to add your two cents and all that stuff. Patreon is in there as well if you'd like to donate. Um, again, this has been Gabby and KT, page 62, and this has been Building Our Power.